This is The Huddle Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Stolo. Today I'm talking with Brian Traskos. Brian is a somatic intelligence expert. He is nationally recognized for his work in coaching, training, and mentoring human development professionals in the science of somatic intelligence. Brian is among a growing network of health professionals who are reimagining what is possible when we step into our own power to heal. I talk with Brian about why are we struggling to stay afloat in our conventional healthcare system? A system overly focused on delivery and not enough on empowerment. We go deeper into the world of motivation and how we can draw from our deepest intentions to take back our health and thrive. Brian, I want to start with a conversation around the arc of your professional career. You started as a healthcare professional, quote unquote, working within the matrix also known as the system, and more recently have kind of gone out on your own, or not so recently, but have gone out on your own. And I want to talk about how that transition happened, because obviously there's a lot of talk right now about mm-hmm. the state of the healthcare system. There's We've talked about it for a very long time and some of the struggles that exist, the pain points that exist in the healthcare system. Maybe share a little bit about what your experience was like in that system. Well, you know, first of all, thanks so much for having me here, Mark, and be able to talk about these things. I think it's a really super important conversation to have, and I'm I'm just grateful to be able to share my experiences with you, uh, especially if it helps other people. So, you know, I was uh, I was fortunate enough, actually, one of my very first jobs out of college was working at a at a world renowned neurological rehab center, and at that center. We had, the, we had the great fortune of working with a smaller number of patients at any given time so that we could really focus on all aspects of that patient's experience, even as a physical therapist. We collaborated a lot between occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech and language pathology, nursing, physiatry, right? We really, we uh, worked holistically as a team together to really uh, neuropsychology also is a big part of that team, I might say. So we really worked holistically together as a team to help someone heal all aspects of their life, even though they were, you know, diagnosed with a neurological trauma, right? We, we recognize that people were still whole. So I had that experience very, very early. And then when I transitioned from that work, because I was moving across the country, I found myself in a whole different setting. In the whole different setting, there were demands to see 18 people a day, you know? So I'm working, I'm literally seeing three to four people an hour now, whereas before I saw one person an hour. Now I'm seeing three to four people every hour, hour after hour after hour, all, all day long. I knew I wasn't giving the best possible care that I could to the, to the people that I was helping. And I remember this very, I remember this one experience just vividly. I remember I was juggling three people or right? I'm running between room A, room B and exercise equipment. I'm like doing my laps with my, you know, or, or with my patients. And I remember I was finishing up with a patient and I was taking them off of uh, some modality. I think I had them hooked up to E-STEM or something like that. And the person, uh, when they got up off of the, uh, out of the seated position and they moved their arm, they were there for a shoulder shoe. They moved their arm around a little bit. 
and they said, you know, it feels better, but this one thing bothers me. And I was, I was looking at it in a certain way where I, I saw exactly what the problem was. Like I, I knew, ex- I saw, oh my God, they've got a subluxation of the AC joint. Like it's right there. I can see it all of a sudden now. I, for some reason I hadn't seen it before, probably because I was running around like crazy, right? And so I'd seen it and I thought to myself, if I had five minutes with that person, I could help them leave here with almost no pain. The other part of me said, I have two people in the waiting room waiting to come in. I need to get somebody in this room right now. I need to get somebody else off that piece of equipment. And I said something to this person that I swore I would never say again. And I said to them, I don't have time to help you right now. And it crushed me. It really, it was, it, it was soul fracturing, soul fracturing for me to say that to a person. When I knew just five minutes, I could send them home without, with much less discomfort. But I said, I can't help you right now. I'm going to have to see you next week. And knowing that I was letting that person go home for a whole week in discomfort that I could solve quickly and I had to make the choice. Do I spend five more minutes with this person and back everybody else's day up and then back up their day and their day? Because in that situation where you're juggling patients like that, you back up one person five minutes, like you're by the end of the day, you're there. Everyone's an hour late, right? And then people are waiting in the waiting room for you an hour longer and they're upset. They don't know that it was something at 10 o'clock in the morning that shifted everything back the rest of the day. The stuff's just too tight. It's just too packed in. And I swore I would never say that again. And that's, I know in my heart, that's the day I started planning to make my transition, to be able to create a, create a practice that was dedicated to providing holistic care for people, where we had time and space to be able to look at all aspects of a person's life and that never again would I say, I don't have time for you right now. Obviously, this this story that you just shared is such a prevalent story across the healthcare system. Yeah. I was just talking to my, uh, sharing with my uncle, uh, who's a physician in, uh, in the US by email, and he was sharing a similar story. Uh, and it's a story I hear all the time. Yeah. The, the conversation around time and the availability of time and the constraints that that imposes on mainstream healthcare practice is just so prevalent. I mean, obviously, <laughs> the bigger question is, is, is there a solution to this? What is the solution? What is the solution to a healthcare system that's doing its best, doesn't have enough capacity? Obviously, now with COVID, it's however many times worse. I don't know what the multiplier effect is, but it's let's just say then uh, many, many many, many um, exponents worse. I, I hear in your voice that the decision that you took was, let's call it a, sp- a spiritual decision, a moral decision, maybe an ethical decision, probably a combination of many different factors that motivated you. How do you address this elephant in the room for people who find themselves back in that moment that you're just describing? And many of them find themselves in that moment. Well, I, I think that you're right. The, the system, the way the system is, is built right now is at capacity. Like, it, like it, it, cannot, it cannot continue the way that it is and serve people really, really well. And that's, that's really because there's, there's just not enough practitioners, providers to provide the services that we have constructed and constrained ourselves into right now. And it really, for me, it really comes down to the idea, are we doing things to people? Are we doing things for people? Or are we doing things with people? And when you're doing things to people, that's a one-to-one ratio. 
So you're never going to have as many providers as you are patients, right? I mean, that's, that, that math is never going to work. So, but we're still built that way that we're doing things to people. We're like doing, um, you know, procedures to people one-on-one, on, one on one. even if we're doing procedures to people, like one-on-two, on two, like that, then people don't feel like they're actually getting anything done to them that they feel less important than the people around them. Same thing if we're doing things for people. If you're doing things for someone that still requires a professional's time and expertise to do something that someone else isn't doing for themselves. And so again, that the math just doesn't work. I really think the solution is moving to doing things with people. And what that means is so when I created my practice, it was heavily based around education and empowerment. Like, you know, I would do things, I would do some manual work to people, but that wasn't a bulk of what, what we did. Really what we did was we educated people on what they had going on. And then we created a collaborative uh, process, things with them, that they were able to build the skills and the empowerment to do most of that work themselves. After all, it's their body. Or it's, their, it's their life. It's their issue. The other thing that happens, I think, when you're in a situation where we're doing things to or doing things for... Oftentimes, what providers find themselves in a situation is that they seem like they're working harder to solve the patient's problem than the patient is for their own thing. So that's, and that's also not sustainable, right? That's not going to work. So at some point in time, the provider has to go, oh my God, I'm trying harder than, than the client. And so this isn't going to work. And that goes, then we have to come back to that sense of empowerment and doing with. Because then as a provider, we can allow ourselves to meet the client in whatever their desired level of improvement is. And because as a practitioner, you can never supersede that for a client, right? The client always, the patient always determines like how much improvement or where they want to go really needs to become the lead in this place. Why do you think the paradigm is right now so dominated by a two and four approach and not a with approach? Well, I think it's, I think a big part of it is two reasons. One is the expert stance. I think a lot of health professionals are driven from an expertise model where people are coming to them for their expertise, not only for their advice, but their, for, for their expertise in terms of the surgery I can do for you, the injections I can do for you, the drugs I can prescribe for you, the manual therapy I can do to to you. So it's, it's, it's this expertise stance. I think the health professionals get locked into that. If I'm the expert, it means that I need to do something expert to you or for you that you can't do to or for yourself, which makes me the expert. So that's one thing. The other thing, I think it's really financially driven because when you're the expert, you know, if we, if we look at it, at least down here in the States, the specialist care is way more desirable than general practice. So you think about all, there's way more specialists right now than there are general practitioners in, in, our, in, in the United States. And that's because as soon as you rise to a level of specialist, you get paid more, right? The economics start to mean more um, movement towards you in terms of financial compensation. The problem is you're still just one specialist. And now you've got tens of thousands of people who want to be seen by a specialist, but that math again is never going to work. So the, the two and four, I think, is really driven by that expertise model and, and mindset that has kind of gone awry in terms of things. 
And so people then start to claim our own, our own silos, our own levels of expertise. I can do it better than other people can do it, um, which means you have to come to me. But by the way, there's not enough room for everybody to see me. And rather than it coming out from, from a level of let's empower people, let's educate and let's help people develop capacities to be able to make choices that meet whatever their own desired outcome is for their life. Yeah. And I would, we've talked about this in our, in our people before patients discussions, but there's also a kind of collusion that then happens in this expert model, which is if I'm the expert, you must be the what? The recipient right. of my expertise. Mm-hmm. And with that recipient's disposition comes a certain kind of passivity. So in a way, it reinforces this authoritarian model. It actually it quashes the empowerment model. Talk about that side of the phenomenon. How, how does that dialogue grow, the experts' dialogue grow on both sides of the conversation? Yeah, so first of all, I want, I want to just say that, you know, this happens to a lot of really well-meaning people. So I'm not saying this isn't nefarious by any means. Right. For the majority of people who go into practices in healthcare, they're very well-meaning and they want to become better at what they do. They want to try to be able to provide better care. They want to be able to have better outcomes for their patients because they love to see that when their patients thrive, they love to get feedback that they were a key player in their patients' uh, healing, if you, know, if you will. So this happens to a lot of well-meaning people. So just the fact that we want to become better at what we do. We want to become more expert. And then it's, this, it's the framework of the, of the paradigm itself that sucks people in. Sucks us in to be on becoming more of an expert. People will then view them as an expert. And then patients, of course, will show up with the idea of, wait, you, you know more about me than I know about me. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me with problems and they'll, they'll give me their, their story, like what their signs and symptoms are and all those kinds of things. And I'll say to them, well, what do you think is going on? And they'll think, they'll say, well, I came here to, to ask you what's going on, paying you to tell me what's going on. Right. And, and I think that just that transaction says a whole bunch because what, what's happening then was driving that side of that paradigm from a patient or client perspective is they have a belief that they really can't empower themselves, that they don't know what to do for themselves. And I'm a believer that actually everyone knows exactly what they need to do for themselves. They just need permission to do it and need support and encouragement to do it. But there's nothing inside of any one of us where we don't already have the answer for it. We just get tangled up in, in acting that answer. And a really good provider will give someone permission and empowerment in order to take the action that they know they need to take in order to create the life that they really want to create. Yeah, so I think you frame this beautifully at the macro level, so like at the systemic level, how this dynamic nurtures this kind of imbalance. Uh, It creates this very, very tight funnel where there's tons of pressure in that Mm -hmm. funnel, time pressures, you know, uh, you've, you've really stated that eloquently. Let's now take it to the micro level, the level of this empowerment process. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing you do a lot of work on is in the area of motivation. Uh-huh. Motivation probably being a huge facet of this empowerment experience. Talk about a person's motivation to move towards an empowerment disposition. How does that, how do you support that process? Well, 
you know, when we think about motivation, one of the first things we want to kind of talk about is that a lot of our motivations, we're not even conscious of them. As a patient, as a client, as a, as a mom, as a dad, as a, as a sibling, as a, whatever, as a doctor, as a lawyer, whatever, no matter who we are in the world, most of the time, our motivations, we're not even really aware of them. And because of that, our motivations can oftentimes get us in bad places to begin with. Like our motivations can actually create behaviors that promote illness, not promote healing, right? So we see, we see a lot of, of that happening. So the first thing that we really want to address with people is what are you actually motivated to do right now? And people are saying, well, I'm motivated to lose 100 pounds or I'm motivated to eat a um, low-fat diet or I'm motivated to do a marathon. And, I'm thinking, and I say, well, are you doing that right now? And they'll say, well, no, right now I feel 50 pounds overweight. Right now I have high blood pressure. Right now I have difficulty walking up the stairs. And I say, well, that's actually what you're motivated for then. And people don't like to hear that. But <laughs> Not only but am I the, here paying you to fix yeah. me. Exactly. I don't want to hear. Yeah. 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 But but the but we have to have an awareness that what where we are right now in our life. And by the way, I'm not we're not saying there's anybody to blame for any of this yeah. because again, a lot of this stuff we're just not aware of, right? We're not consciously saying I want to be unhealthy. We're not consciously saying that I want to uh, die young and have a disease process. We're not even consciously saying that I want to be the expert and, and hold power over other people. So I'm not saying any of this stuff is conscious. But if we're getting the result in the life that we're getting, it must be driven from somewhere, right? It must be coming from someplace. Stuff doesn't just happen without a cause, uh, cause causing it sort of thing. So first thing we have to do is become aware of, hey, this is what's actually happening. So I must be motivated to get the results I'm getting in my life right now which I know can be like a big ouchie for people. I, I, I get that. I don't like when I, when I have those realizations for myself either, but I do know that it's very difficult to move to the next place of motivating in the direction you do want to go without recognizing how you've gotten where you are right now. Yeah. So unconscious, revealing kind of the unconscious motivators. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I think that the tendency when we talk about this side of the narrative is for some people to lean on blame or you're blaming me for, you know, uh, where I am in my life it's less it's really not about the blame as much as it is about becoming aware of the choices one is one is making again whether they are happening at a very willful level like a very conscious level or simply the outgrowth of a narrative that a person's not aware of but ultimately in that moment they are the byproduct of those choices conscious or, or otherwise yeah you you 100% correct and again it's not about it's not about blame at all you know some people are stricken with a virus that, that comes out of nowhere and, they, and then they find themselves going through a path of, of from doctor to doctor to try to help with their symptomology and those kinds of things. And I think that's a very uh, arduous path, but also a very necessary path for people to go through. And I support a lot of people who are on that type of, on that type of journey. And some of those people will have less resistance to making changes in their life in order to help themselves feel better. Other people will have more resistance to making those changes. And I think that's really where we need to start addressing, again, with no blame at all for people. Um, you know, so if you're, if you're experiencing a virus 
and you could change what you eat or what you drink, and that would help to give you a better possibility to heal yourself, to bolster your system, even living with the virus. Some people are going to say, I can absolutely make those changes, no problem at all. Other people are going to like, but then I have to do this, and then that, and then this, and then that. So there's more resistance to making those changes. So that's, I'm curious in terms of those motivations, digging deeper into that aspect of things, especially if you say that you want something, but you're not, you're not making the choices to move closer in that direction. Like I'm just super, super curious about that. Yeah. And you do a ton of work in this space and it's something that you're, you're going to be doing more work on through huddle as well. And we'll share that through huddle, this whole world of motivation. You talk about you have a great framework for understanding different levels of motivation and hopefully I won't butcher them, but you talk about, (laughs) you talk about motivation at the level of moving away from something, Mm -hmm. moving toward something and then moving by something. Yeah. Help our listeners understand the three tiers of those types of motivation. Uh, Because the one thing that you said the last time we spoke that I thought was really important is understand that motivation isn't always the thing that you're aspiring towards because most people hear motivation they i don't know there's a vision in their head of anthony robbins cheering them up a mountain i don't know right so talk about those three layers of motivation yeah so i call this the motivational hierarchy and so at the bottom of the motivational hierarchy is being motivated away from something so think about avoidance think about aversion so that's that's a source of motivation when we're trying to have something not happen, that's uh, avoidance or aversion. So we're motivated to not have something happen. I call that motivated away from. Now, depending on how intensely we don't want that thing to happen, the motivated away from has a lot of initial energy to it. Right? It has, it has a ton of initial energy, but not very long sustained energy. Like in other words, once we're away from the thing that we wanna get away from, Usually our energy to move away from it any further kind of linger, like it just goes away sort of thing. So think about, and so motivate, being motivated away from is a very powerful motivation. Oftentimes it gets us out of the frying pan. The problem is we oftentimes jump into the fire, right? When we're, when we're trying intensively just to get away from something, we oftentimes end up in places that are even worse for us because of that. So we have to look at our daily motivations and ask ourselves, how many times during the day am I taking an action because I don't want something to happen? Or am I taking an action because I don't feel good right now and I want to feel something different? And so I take a different action to feel differently, but really what I'm doing is moving away from what I'm, what I'm experiencing right in this moment. Like give a concrete so example of that, like something that most people could relate to. Yeah, well, I've met a tremendous amount of people, believe it or not, Mark, and, and at times I've been this person where I find myself going to the refrigerator to eat ice cream because I don't like the way that I'm feeling. Like I come home at the end of the day and I've had a hard day and I'm frustrated and I'm depressed and I come home and I just like open up the freezer and start eating ice cream. And, you know, if I slowed down, I'd say, why am I eating this ice cream? It's because I want to feel something differently than what I'm feeling in that moment. I'm moving away from a sensory experience of frustration or anger or upset or whatever it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect sense. Yeah, that's great. So that could be one thing. Okay, so the next tier is moving, motivated, being motivated towards something. So the bottom is motivated away. The next tier is motivated towards something. So this is the way most of us think about in terms of traditional motivation. Like I said, a goal for myself, 
I'm going to lose 100 pounds. Um, so I'm motivated towards that ideal weight. Now, motivated towards has some initial energy, less initial energy than being motivated away from something, but it has longer sustained energy to it. The trouble with being motivated towards something is it requires a little bit of energy every day from us, from willpower, if, if you want to think about it like that. So if I'm thinking I'm going to lose my, I'm motivated to lose 100 pounds, then every day I have to motivate myself to get on the treadmill or to take a walk or motivated to eat you know, celery rather than the ice cream in the freezer, what, whatever it is. But, I, but it takes a little bit of energy every day for me to add in that being motivated towards that goal. So the goal is somewhere out there in the future. I'm motivated towards it. Um, it has longer sustained energy, especially if I can hold the image of that in my, in my mind, but it requires energy every day. You know, evidenced by lots of people set goals off in the future and they never even come close to completing them because it requires too much energy on a daily basis in order to get to the goal. Right, which is why most people end up renewing their same New Year's Eve resolutions every year. Right. Yeah, yeah so motivated towards is more evolved than motivated away from, for sure. The next tier up is what we call motivated by. So when we're motivated by, um, some people call this intrinsic motivation. We're motivated by internally. Now, I will tell you, I think that all motivation is intrinsic. I don't think there's any such thing actually as intrinsic as extrinsic motivation. Because even if someone said, well, the extrinsic motivation is completing the goal of losing the 100 pounds, or... The extrinsic motivation is that you'll earn, you know, you'll get a bonus at the end of the year if you sell so many widgets. Yeah, well, yeah, that's an external goal, but that external goal is making you feel a certain way internally. So it's still intrinsic, essentially. Right. It starts right? with it's an the, interior experience is what you're saying. Exactly. Some, some feeling, some ex, something that is driven by some kind of value or some kind of belief. Right. Right. And that's why the motivated towards, which some people would call it extrinsic, is less optimal than motivated by. Because if you're not connected to the internal felt quality, when you're motivated, quote unquote, towards anything, which by the way, would make it motivated by, you're going to run out of gas eventually. So sustainable motivation is when you're motivated by something intrinsically, when you recognize that everything outside of me is reflected inside of me with a felt quality. Now, there are different um, ways to identify what you're motiv motivated by, right? There's all kinds of different purpose work out there. Um, there's all different kinds of assessments out there. We have the R assessment that we use for that sort of thing. We've both a proprietary assessment and also an, a validated assessment tool we use. But once, you're, once you can identify what the felt quality state is, whatever you name it, in terms of being motivated by, you make choices each day to be in alignment with the specific belt quality state around that. So for instance, um, one of my, one of the ways I describe it is uh, the creator is one of the uh, ways I label a felt quality state within myself of what I'm motivated by. So I could have a goal to create a, uh, or to write a book, let's say. I could have a goal to write a book. Now, if I was motivated towards I would say, okay, so I'm going to spend every day writing pages to get to this, right? I'm going to write chapter uh, one today, chapter two tomorrow, chapter three. I could tell you what, I've actually tried to create things before that way, and I don't even make it to the end of the week because it feels like a lot of work to me. Like, oh, I got to write another chapter today. Oh my God, I'm having to add fuel into it. Right. But if every day I make take a moment to fuel the 
what I, the felt body experience that I call creative within me, the creator within me, then that blossoms off into a whole bunch of different areas of creativity. And then not, and not, not only am I creating now um, podcasts or worksheets or programs or writing a book, now I'm actually blossoming over uh, or flowing over within myself in that act with my life. And then that creative potential can flow off into a bunch of different directions to meet goals or create outcomes in my life that are aligned with who I am internally. Does it, is it an antidote to the kind of resistance that, you know, like in the war of art, which is like a great thesis on, on mm. resistance, the author talks about the experience of a creative process and the invariable resistance that one encounters. Does it eliminate, when you're operating in a, in a by kind of motivation paradigm, does it eliminate the resistance or does it act as a different kind of antidote to the resistance? Yeah, I guess I like the word, I like the word antidote because the fact is, is that when you're, when you're trying to change anything in your life, anything at all, you will meet resistance. That's just how we, that's just how we function as human beings. And I would challenge anybody who said that they had a different outcome in their life and they didn't have any resistance at all toward it. Because if, if you want to make a change, you really want to make a substantive change in your life and you don't have resistance to it, then you're really not making a change. What makes the most expert people at change, experts in change, is they, is they navigate the resistance. They know how to navigate the resistance when it comes up. And plus, first thing, they know it's going to come up, number one. Number two, they know exactly what to do when it does come up. And so when you think about the antidote, that's why I like that you use that language around that, Mark, is because uh, understanding how to fuel your own inner capacity to connect with your own principles, whatever those are for you in your life, your own values, your own principles, the things in your life that don't bend, the things in your life that make you core to who you are, and you feed those things, that is a, a great antidote if, to navigating the resistance that will come up whenever you're making any change at all. The other cool thing when you're motivated by is that will, that will actually feed energy back into itself because we all, will, we all love to feel the way that we love to feel. And when we are in that space, it refuels itself. So, I mean, I've stayed up, you know, countless, countless hours and without eating and without drinking and without even sleeping, creating things and never feeling exhausted because of that, because you're in such a state of flow around that. So, and again, creativity is just an example we're using right here, but even if someone is on a healing path, and so this is, again, what I work with with my clients, they come to me, they're sick. They're in adrenal fatigue. Their backs are uh, killing them, right? They have neck pain, right? They're, they're suffering in some way that they want to change. And it might seem like it's off course, but helping them to identify what their own core drivers are and then helping them to create practices to feed those core drivers automatically spill over into their healing journey. Mm. We don't, you know, of course, we have to create kind of like a roadmap for what they're going to do to get there. But there's almost no, uh, it almost takes no energy to get it done because they know how to navigate things when they come up and they know how to overcome that resistance. And they're constantly feeding back into themselves what their core drivers are. Yeah, it sounds like the difference between a push-pull tug of war, which obviously in any tug of war, there's going to be tension and there's going to be mm -hmm. soreness. Uh, it's a struggle versus operating in a kind of kind of a self-authoring creative disposition 
in the sense that something is growing from the inside out. It's not about a push-pull. So the push-pull being either I'm avoiding or I'm moving towards, right? So I'm mm-hmm. stuck in that. And most pe- to your point, most people don't succeed at that tug-of-war. Well, first of all, they're in a tug-of-war with themselves. So that takes a bit of time to come to that awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. Yeah, which I think is part of the work that you're doing, helping to kind of expose that narrative. What are you mm-hmm. actually wrestling with? Because I think most people think that they're wrestling with some external reality. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you're kind of inviting them into the space of realizing that, no, they're actually in that classic hero's version, you know, face to face with themselves in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I like the idea that the work that you're doing is helping to liberate that energy in a way. Because I, I think what I hear you saying is part of the physical manifestation of the soreness, the pain, the tension it's growing out of that push-pull relationship yes absolutely so it's that that's that conflict in the body where we are fighting our so where there's aspects of our subconscious experience that are fighting each other and the the, the truth is as humans we're always being prompted to grow we're always being prompted to become something more than we are right now the, the trouble is, is that if we're not aware of that, we will see um, those promptings as being dysfunctional or problematic or, or we'll, threatening. Yeah, we'll see, the prob- we'll see the promptings themselves as being threatening and, and or we'll see the external constraints that we are perceiving as being too great for those promptings to be able to overcome. And there's a great, one of the, one of the sayings that I just love to live by and share with a lot of people is, uh, is actually from a book called the Tao Te Ching. And it says that in the pursuit of knowledge, every day, something is gained in following the Tao every day, something is dropped. And when, what that means is that in order to become our greatest selves, it's not about gaining anything else. It's about letting go of the things that are in the way of us naturally becoming who we're destined to be. And that's really a big part of the work. It's simplifying. It's really about simplifying who we are rather than becoming too complex. And I think just looping that back into the work with people before patients and the work in healthcare, you know, a lot of the structure that we've based our modern day healthcare system on is creating more complexity. And so as a, as a civilization, we bow down and honor complexity as being a higher order. And in essence, a true path to healing has to do with more simplicity. 